You're listening to Death of a Reader. Welcome to an extended cut here on the podcast. So good to have you. We're incredibly pleased to be joined by John Ingold, a founder and narrative director at Inkle, a British video game company that specializes in replayable narrative games. We've brought John to discuss their recently released title, Overboard, a murder mystery game set on a boat where you are the murderer. John, it's so great to have you here. Welcome to Death of the Reader. Hi, thanks guys. Thanks for having me. So, John, your game seems to tackle the age-old question, can reading murder mysteries help you get away with murder? As I mentioned, we're talking Dead Little Roosters today, which is, as a piece of interactive fiction, is very defined in what it asks of its players. You know from the very beginning what sort of inputs you need to make to win the game, whereas in Overboard, it's very much the opposite. It's open-ended in terms of what actions you need to take for various outcomes. How much trust do you have to put into your players to leave them so, pun intended, at sea? So there's a whole load of design that goes behind that to make that work. Because if you make a if you make a game that's totally open, then people tend to wander around prodding things. They don't know quite what to do, and you lose that momentum. Because the goal, if you do your job right as a narrative designer, what you do is you make a world where the player feels like everything they do matters, whether it's a little thing, like you know the way that you talk to someone, or whether it's a big thing, like coshing someone over the back of the head with a small statuette while they're not looking. Every one of those little moments should feel like it matters. And to do that, it's got to have momentum behind it. So I'm the narrative director on the project. I'm also the writer. And kind of my main job is to make sure that at every moment, it feels like what you're doing right now is ridiculously important to whether or not you're going to get away with this murder. Uh, which is kind of like, if you're writing a... a a normal murder mystery or a normal thriller or something, it probably ought to feel like that too. Like every moment needs to feel important in a small way, in a big way, but you you shouldn't have a moment where, well, you know, there's high stakes drama going on, but right now we're just kicking back. This bit doesn't matter too much. There's always something at stake. Uh, It's just in our game, what's at stake is, yeah, is the future life of the protagonist of the of the game, which is arguably a, a smaller stake than you know, a, you know, a lot of video games. You're saving the world, running around, shooting people. But in this, it's it's one person's life, or or maybe two, depending on, I guess, how you kind of play the game. Um, now, I, I guess I want to ask. Uh, during our playthrough, we actually uh, observed what I think was kind of a kind of a catch-all moment. The first time we reached an ending, there was where a bunch of different characters who weren't on screen kind of shouted, you know, at once that we'd messed up. You know, what time we'd we'd killed the the or the, the murder victim had gone missing. Um, how 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 many moments are there, or, or how kind of pervasive is that idea of the catch-all mechanic? That you know, there are lots of specific moments that stand out, but sometimes. Uh, the player can can fail one way, but in a lot of different ways. And you have to kind of catch them in one in one net, if that makes sense. The overboard is structured like a classic 1930s Agatha Christie mystery, right? In that you, you the murder happens at the beginning or, or near, you know, very near the beginning, and then there's a bunch of stuff that goes on, and then at the end, the detective character gathers everyone into a room and says, "Right, let's let's just talk this through." You know, it's that classic end of Poirot scene. Of course, the twist is that you're not Poirot. You're the person you're really hoping Poirot isn't going to point the finger at. So although there are a couple of other ways to end a game of Overboard early, mostly by jumping off the boat yourself, I really wanted to capture that sense of the classic 30s structure. So it always ends in this scene in the restaurant where the characters will come together and talk about what they found and lay the blame on someone. The fun of it is, though, what you did in the eight hours before that can completely change how that scene goes. So. One time they might be just mainlining an accusation at you. And the next time they'll get completely distracted by someone else. And it's all about what can you do in the eight hours before 
to change how that conversation goes in little ways or significant ways. Yeah. It was just one moment that kind of stuck out with me when we were in that scene in the restaurant car and we saw there were a bunch of lines came on screen with no character animation. It seemed as though it was it was ambiguous as to who was actually saying those lines. I felt like the moment of being called out as, you know, when did the body actually go missing? Um, you sort of laid in this this event to catch, you know, multiple situations. That's the impression I got. Is that accurate or is that is that maybe off the mark? I think that's probably off the mark. If you play it again, you might find that it goes quite differently or that different accusations come out in different orders. I mean, if you do the same things, you'll get the same ending, right? Because <laughs> it's sure, a clockwork sure. system. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, there isn't there isn't any one line in the game really that always gets hit. Um, because the whole idea is to make sure that because the fun of it is is to see how much you can poke and prod and get it to twist and bend. And then of course the detective character, the fun of him is him trying to pull the plot back onto track and say, no, 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 wait, no, 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 no. We are supposed to be accusing you. So it's a battle of wills between you, the protagonist, and this, this character who is your nemesis. Uh, one really interesting decision that I that I did like was that the first few times you succeed in getting away with the crime, uh, a new twist uh, can be introduced and you have to reconsider your objectives, uh, get a new piece of backstory and start again. Uh, what did withholding goals from the player uh, from the beginning of the game allow you to do that you couldn't have otherwise? Is there a, a secret extra set of objectives that players have yet to find? Or uh, Well, there are. Uh, yeah, there's a couple of secret objectives which um, can come out in strange ways. And some of those are just fun. And there's, there's quite a gonzo one that's played for laughs. And then there's some of them are a bit more serious and a bit more kind of in genre. One of the things I love about interactive writing is that you don't have to make your mind up about what something is going to be, right? Like you can have a playthrough of this, which is like a bloodthirsty thriller and the writing support that. And then you can have a version where you're playing someone who's completely innocent and such an ingenue and can't possibly be pinned for anything, but is actually a cold-hearted killer in disguise. And then there's another version where you're just being ridiculous and doing the stupidest and most outlandish things you can do. And the game kind of supports that as a farce as well, because it's interactive. It can it can kind of riff off what you choose to do as a player, right? And run with that. And when you get that feeling right, it's kind of joyous, I think. It's rule of three, isn't it? There are three core game objectives, right? The first objective is just to get away with it. The second objective is a bit of a twist on that. And then the third objective is a twist on the twist of that. So what that lets us do is essentially to build a three act structure into a game that you don't that doesn't have three acts to it so the first time you play the game you you open it up this murder happens and it's just one thing get away with it you've just got to get away with it and hopefully the player is running around the ship like a mad jackrabbit with everything just going wrong everything they touch goes wrong everyone they talk to goes wait a minute didn't you say this earlier and you go oh no i did and like and it's a disaster. The first playthrough should be an utter disaster. And by the end of the game, you should be just the guiltiest person in the room because that's the most fun, right? And then, okay, finally, you go back, you get that objective right, and you think, yes, I've done it. And along comes this second objective that says, no, you didn't. <laughs> and you can go back. Um, and because I think one of the things we have to be really careful of is not overwhelming the player at any point. Um, I guess this is true in... If you look at Christie's stuff, I read a couple of Christie novels in preparation for writing this. And one thing she tries really carefully to do, but she doesn't always get right, is, is to make sure there's enough characters that you're interested and you've got different people to suspect, but not so many characters that you can't keep track of who the hell is who. 
because murder mysteries often have a problem that you pile like 10 really interesting and complicated and complex and slightly hard to trust people into a room. And the player's like, I'm sorry, which one is which? Is that the, <laughs> which, is that the who? And the, where I thought they were twins. Oh no, he's his cousin. Oh, And it gets very complicated very fast. So again, one of the things we can do because of the interactive thing is we can layer that information in at a pace that the player can handle and actually turn the interactivity into a way of distributing information at a good speed which is kind of just balancing really like we balance the game but instead of balancing i don't know how a gun works or how a sword works we're balancing how much information are we putting in people's heads like are they keeping up yeah i guess talking about providing iterative information each time as herds mentioned you get a new ending you also get an extra piece of backstory you get a newspaper clipping talking about what was going on the setup the lead into the crime for example, we discover that Malcolm, who was the protagonist's husband, had some really nasty political leanings. What led to the decision to make the murder victim someone uh, dislikable, but simultaneously, as the game goes on, start to chip away at the, I guess, levels of morality on the ship? You know, slowly we start to see that the rest of the cast isn't as spotless as uh, you might have originally thought. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a two-part question, I think. Like, one thing all the characters on the ship have got some kind of dark secret because they have to have a dark secret, right? You can't have anyone in a murder mystery turning out to be the person that you thought they were up front. Or, I mean, you could, but it seems a bit of a wasted opportunity. Like, I definitely wanted this thing to feel, you know, like it's a, it's a, it's a work of art and I'm proud of it and I'm a serious writer and all of that, but I also wanted it to feel more like a murder mystery dinner party that you're at with some friends than maybe a really good, you know, solid murder mystery novel. And that's okay because it's fun. Um, as for Malcolm, for the, the victim himself. So in a way, that was something I kind of discovered as I was writing the game because we write in quite an iterative way as well. So when I started the project, there was this, the protagonist, this woman, Veronica Villanzi, she's an actress and she pushes her husband overboard in the first 10 seconds of the game. And then it's like, right, what are you going to do about it? And we built this game and you start solving this problem and trying to help her out. And I showed it to the rest of the team at the studio. And someone said, it was about three, four weeks into writing. They said, How, I'm a bit worried. How are we going to get the player to sympathize with this woman? And I said, well, I, I don't understand the question. She's the protagonist. He was like, but but she starts the game doing something really cold-blooded and horrible. So why are people going to like her? And I thought, oh yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't even stopped to consider that question because for me, I just I the moment Veronica Villanzi popped into my head as a writer, I just loved her as a character. So I just wanted to do this game because it seemed fun. But I think that was because that was because Veronica pretty much walked into my room and told me what to write, and I just had to keep up. So she had convinced me totally. So I was like, oh great, okay, I need to convince the player as well. So when you play the game, to start with, I think you're just carried away by the momentum of it, right? You don't really stop to think about it too much. It's quite cartoony. You think, well, it's not a big deal. Then first few playthroughs, there are a few little hints that maybe Malcolm was a bit of a brute. Maybe he was a bit violent. So as a player, you might start to think, well, okay, maybe. I'm not sure what happened here, but maybe he, maybe he had it coming. And of course, then you learn he's had an affair and you think, oh, well, clearly, you know, he's not a nice guy. So you're kind of building up this, you've got this desire for Veronica's crime to turn out to be a good thing to have done. You want that to be the case. You, it's like when your friend does something wrong, you want to believe that they had a good reason to do it, right? You, you don't want to believe they're just a bad person. So when you finally find out that her husband, um, yeah, has links to the British fascist party of the 30s, it's kind of like a, 
it's kind of like a reward, isn't it? You kind of go, hey, he's a Nazi. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> <You got him. laughs> Fantastic. It sort of pays out that concern that you've had that maybe it, she's not a good person. Oh, no, it's fine. Everything's fine. He's a fascist. Over you go. <laughs> Let's get on with it. <laughs> you totally lose that like fear of what if I'm the bad guy? Nope, not at all. Exactly, exactly. And I think that, you know, that's really important to me on in another way, which is that one of the core things that we wanted to do with the game was just make something that was joyous, that's just riotous and fun. And so that question that you just mentioned of, oh, what if I'm the bad guy? Like, you know, that's the psychological drama question. That's the, what if, you know, everyone inside them has got an evil monster just waiting to come out and we've all got a dark side and let's worry about that. No, let's not worry about that at all. Actually, the guy who got killed was an awful person. Everything's fine. Let's just get on with our lives. And I like that as a kind of joyous twist on the on the, the kind of grim dark thing that you see. Yeah, I, I think I think the thing that stands out to me there is that when we were playing through it, every time we got a, a bad option, it was always almost more interesting than succeeding. And that's one thing that a lot of, I think, interactive stories not necessarily struggle with, but a bar that some kind of don't clear as well, but Overboard did a really great job of always making sure that when I clicked an option and was like, oh, I didn't mean to click that, no matter what I hit, there was always something interesting on the other side of the choice I didn't mean to make. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, interactive fiction is like you set it up in advance and then you let the player explore it. So it's got to have boundaries, right? And everybody going into the game knows that there's a boundary. There's a point beyond which you just can't do. Like you can't set fire to the ship in Overboard. You can't blow it up. Fair enough. That's okay. But when people enter a game, just like with a book or a TV show, they enter it with a bunch of expectations about what the experience is going to be like. They come in with an idea of where those boundaries are. And because people have played a lot of these games or, or just have a sense of them, the boundaries are often quite narrow. They think, well, you know, I'm going to basically be a good person. I'm basically going to tell the truth. I'm going to be trying to do the things I'm trying to do. So when there's an option like, well, there's this guy who sort of maybe knows something about me, so perhaps I could just kill him now can I just kill him then you put that option in people sort of expect to click the kill the steward button and have the game go no 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 no. come on you can't do that come on that's that's out that's beyond the pale that's too far and so when the game goes okay you've just done it and you go oh crap (laughs) (laughs) that experience of thinking you know where the boundary is and finding out that the boundary is actually way over there much further out it has this effect of making the world feel five times bigger than it really is um, so I love it as a trick. Generally, I try to use it all the time of just making it look like you think you know where the limits are and then making sure that there are limits, but the limits are a lot further out than you thought they were because it just it makes people love what they're doing. <laughs> they yeah, I mean, there's there's that uh, that image that's been doing the rounds recently from a GDC talk you gave with the yikes. What did I just do? Right. Yeah, that, that <laughs> I think perfectly yeah. encapsulates that idea. Yeah. Can I tell you that when I was when we played the game through you know, our first session, we got to the point where we were given the option to throw Clarissa overboard. And like, it's not specifically because it was Clarissa, but when we were given the option to throw someone overboard, I was going, yes, let's go. Let's do it. Like, that sounds like the most outrageous thing we could do. Let's just throw ourselves in wholesale. Um, I, I guess, I guess I want to know how did you uh, kind of write the game to, to encourage that sort of behavior, the, the farcical, because, because you're in a very serious situation and you've made a joyous game and a charming protagonist, but how do you kind of condition players to want to push those boundaries and like take the craziest, most sometimes most violent option? You know, I'm not even sure that I do. I think, I think it's a win-win actually. 
because players, you, you don't really know as the writer what the mindset of the player will be when they approach a particular scene. So like the one that you're talking about, you're on the rail with Clarissa and some people will approach that actually genuinely concerned about this young woman and wanting to find out how she's feeling. There are definitely people who will approach the game that way. And there'll be other ones who are just trying to prod the buttons and find out what the mechanical advantage of this scene is. You know, can I put my charisma up by five? There are always players like that. And then there'll be people perhaps like yourselves thinking, how badly, how badly can I make this go wrong? Like, <laughs> and if you put in choices where one of the choices is, you know, Veronica can say, look, Clarissa, you know, I'm your friend. Talk to me. Unburden yourself. It's going to be OK. And one of the choices is chuck her overboard. Then chuck if her. I want if I want to choose the um, empathetic route, then knowing that I could have chucked her overboard makes my decision to be kind more precious. And if I put the chuck overboard route in, and also the empathetic one, then the decision to chuck her overboard is more exciting because you didn't have to do it. Like having the fact that you offer that divergence is kind of its own reward for every player because they're clearly different routes. They clearly feel different, but you can't, then they're clearly mutually exclusive, right? So you make every choice that the player takes more precious by making sure you all include something, which is a definite alternative. And we, we try to do that all the time like obviously when you're throwing someone overboard that's clearly a pretty catastrophic decision right it, 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 it irrevocably changes the future plot of the game but we do try to do that a lot with minor conversations as well so even when you're having a little conversation with someone um, my favorite example is right at the beginning actually veronica wakes up she realizes she's overslept she hasn't done anything to fix the evidence of this crime there's a knock on the door it's the steward and the first choice is just come in or don't come in and like that feels like a big choice, but only because you don't know what the ramifications of it will be, but you've got to do something. Like, and I love that you can get that sense of there being a real parting of the ways, a kind of a real gap between options without the stakes even being life or death. The stakes can be really minor or just unknown. I find that really fascinating as a writer. I think that's that's where the tension comes from. That's where the like spicy sense of presence comes from. So it's not entirely about just farcical outcomes, but they're cool too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I kind of wanted to jump back and talk a little bit about the the time period. You know, you mentioned the the, the joy that we feel uh, when we discover that Malcolm was actually a fascist all along. And it's set in the 1930s, obviously a turbulent time in Europe to say the least. How did the leanings and political tensions of the time help you craft the cast of admittedly few characters on the ship? You know, what facets of society did you have to narrow down to to pick this entire cast? That's really interesting. Actually, I, to my great shame, I came at it from the other angle for this project. So this one was all about character for me. So you, in the center, you have your core character of Veronica, and then most of the other characters are positioned to kind of offset and draw out something about her. So um, the other young woman on the ship is, is Clarissa. She's American rather than English. She's rich. She doesn't need to be posh because she's from America. Whereas Veronica, who comes from a fairly tawdry background, but is trying to become aristocratic, she's trying to become rich and socialite and well-to-do. She has to learn manners and etiquette because she's British and that's how it's done in Britain. So that friction between the fact that Clarissa can be can be rich and well off and act like a like a child, essentially, whereas Veronica feels this constant pressure to be performing like correctly and properly when she doesn't really want to. Like that gives them a, a reason to hate each other from the moment that they meet. And um, 
And everything about Clarissa's character is really just a dark mirror of Veronica's. So, you know, Veronica feels turbulent emotions and shows absolutely nothing. Clarissa feels turbulent emotions and bursts into tears in the middle of a crowded room yeah, and so on and so forth. They, they should be like sisters, but they can't because they really don't like each other. And so that's where Clarissa comes from. So it's more a question of finding a character who will, who will spar with Veronica well. And then looking to the world and saying, well, where can I get this character from? Ah, oh, yeah, upper class American in the 30s, you know, money from kind of new industry. That that works really well for that context. Um, and the kind of it, the same is true of, of kind of the other characters as well. So you have the, the older lady who's kind of seen it all before and is very world wary and is quite sort of horny and dirty mouthed actually because she can get away with it because she's a proper aristocrat she's born into it nobody cares how she behaves she can be absolutely awful and everyone will still call her lady armstrong because she's a lady well how irritating is that to veronica who is working really hard to try and be an aristocrat and here's this lady who can just do what she likes and that's utterly unfair so you get another source of friction that way um uh, with the men, it's a little bit harder because Veronica doesn't really care about men that much. So she's not that bothered by them. So you don't get as much friction between Veronica and Carstairs or Veronica and Anders or the Major because she's used to men just doing what she tells them to. That's that's her experience of, of walking around with men. They just do what she tells them to and she just gets on with her life and she doesn't really think very much of them. Um, so there's a little bit you can do with that. So you have Anders, who's very much in love with her, and she sort of is and sort of doesn't really care that much about him, and you can't quite tell. But they definitely don't have a symmetric dynamic there. Um, and then you have Carstairs, who just isn't phased by her at all. Like, you know, when you meet him, I, I suspect most players will probably assume that he's gay just because every time she says, oh, Mr. Carstairs is so charming, he goes, oh, yeah, hi. <laughs> you know, he's just not that bothered. He just doesn't get phased by her beautifulness. Um and he isn't, he, he's got a different story attached to him. But so it was very much about trying to find characters that produced the best interactions in a short space, a bit like if you were writing a play or something, and then using the historical time period to fill those people in and to make them whole and to make them real, um, rather than trying to depict the kind of socio-political situation of the 30s and with kind of representative characters that way. Um, because it's a character piece at its heart rather than a period piece, I think. Yeah, so this uh, this murder mystery game, Overboard, moves at a, at a lightning pace. Uh, with, even with so few characters, everything's moving, there's momentum, crazy things are happening. Uh, we here at Death of the Reader are no strangers to interactive murder mysteries that revolve around the clock, uh, having covered Jordan Mechner's The Last Express previously on the show. Um, how did you settle on the decision to create such a short fuse for the narrative bomb of the story? Oh, I love The Last Express. It's like my favorite. Oh my game. goodness, we need to oh, talk. Oh gosh, oh, we need to talk. Calm down, boys. Who's your calm favorite down. character? <laughs> Is it August Schmidt? I need to know. It's just the best. It's the best written video game <laughs> ever. It's still the best written video game ever, and like very few people have played it, and it's just ludicrously well written. And I completely agree. I'm constantly going back and stealing things from it, like like breaking into people's cabins because they happen not to be there at just that moment in time. I'll, I'll just, just leave the room for a bit, leave you two <laughs> I, to it. <laughs> Sorry, there was a question attack. Oh yeah, it was about- I, Oh, time. can't we just talk oh. the last Express for 20 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a question. It was about the the time, the timing. Why did you decide on such a short fuse? Because the last Express is set, you know, continuously over the three days of the journey, uh, which is many hours, uh, and you decide on 40 minutes. Why, why so short? So a couple of reasons. One of the key- ideas that we had was we wanted the whole game to feel like falling off something basically falling overboard right the whole game what to feel like you start the game by you fall over the rail and you're just going ah splash 
and it, it and there shouldn't be a period in the middle. You guys know the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, yeah, right? Yeah. Yes. I've got the complete collection on the bookshelf right oh out of shot there, yeah. So there's the bit where the whale gets created and it's falling through the sky towards the planet. It goes, ah, and then it falls for so far because it's high up in space that it goes, oh, what am I doing? Oh, well, and it starts to have some thoughts because it can't just keep screaming for the whole time because it, it's it, the fall is too long. We, we didn't want to do that. We didn't want there to be a point in the middle where you're like, well, it's going to hang out now because there doesn't seem to be anything for me to do. It has to keep that constant forward pressure. Yeah, eight hours felt about right. You know, waking up in the morning, well, it's a sensible place to start. The afternoon, that's a decent place to end. I, I kept wondering about making it shorter, actually, to make it kind of the, the meeting at lunchtime, but there wasn't quite enough room for the player to get themselves into a real model if we did that. So we made it long enough that you really can hang yourself. Um, but it's fairly carefully balanced that time. But it's just to make sure that the player should always feel like they're running out of time, always. Um, until they know exactly what they're doing and then the game kind of changes tone a bit um, because that way and that way that helps because that means you can come back and you can play again like if you get to the end and it was long then there's a bit of a kind of oh really do I have to get through the intro again do I have to do this but it should just be no I'm just there I'm there I'm there I'm there I'm there I'm there um, and like we've seen People have been, if the game's been out a week now and people have been posting screenshots on Twitter occasionally and one of the screenshots people post is the end newspaper and one of the stats on the end newspaper is how many runs have you done of this game? And I think the largest I've seen right now is 214. Oh gosh, which we got a ways to go then. <laughs> astonishing to me, right? But um, but okay, <laughs> like okay, you know, that's, that's the advantage of the 40 minute run through, right? Um, and it also means that when you know what you're doing, you can nail it really, really fast. And I quite like that. And it's also really useful from a testing point of view. I was going to say, uh, not to you know talk about Steam achievements too much, as, a, as much of a blight as they are on the creative gaming industry, but, <laughs> but I did notice, I had to flick through the Steam achievements. It tells you not only how many characters you can kill, but, but also gives you an idea of how quickly you can get through the game. I think I saw you could get through the main story, at least with the first objective, in under three hours, which seemed ludicrous to me. Um, I, uh, I, I guess under two, under two even, even less. Um, I guess- have have you made a, a kind of conscious decision to put less uh how do I explain this less important content later on in the day so that players can like finish it that that quickly? Is that something you've kind of worked out or That's interesting? No, not really. Um generally speaking, like if you want like to take the two hour example, I'm pretty sure you could waste three hours in the morning and then do it in two hours, if you see what I mean. It's just hard to measure for the game that <laughs> that's what you've done. Like it's not that the content in the morning is more important. Like there is a little bit in the morning, I think, that's important. It's very important at the start of the game that the player has something immediately to be getting on with. So there has to be content straight away, right? But there are definitely things in the afternoon which are also important and only come out then. But you can build strategies that don't need those things. And that's a conscious design decision that it's possible to get through. Yeah, I, th I thought one of the interesting choices in terms of the mechanics of the game was that when you visit a scene, your previous dialogue options are saved. Yeah which for when you're doing multiple runs through, for example, I know we basically would set up the first scene one way and try different permutations with either letting the steward in or telling, uh, or, you know, impersonating Malcolm through the door and kind of having that option to simultaneously have something immediately ready to go through, but also being able to just kind of queue up your previous actions helped keep the pace and the flow of things moving a lot more when we weren't having to sit through the same dialogue options and we just knew that, you know, this is the way we have the scene set up. We know the kind of questions we're going to be asked later on. 
yeah, that was a really exciting piece of design for us, actually, because that came in quite late in the process that we'd built most of the game and we were playtesting it. And I guess I'd kind of imagined it as being you run through this game maybe once, twice, three times, because I tend to underestimate the complexity of something while I'm writing it, because, I, of course, it's all in my head. So it all feels obvious. Right. And then we were testing it amongst the team and people were saying, well, I'm on my seventh run and I'm just getting a little bit sick of going through the same options with the steward every time. Is there a way we can do an autoplay feature? And it's really difficult because the game is super dynamic, right? You might have a choice. You might have a choice between three particular options when you're talking to a character and then you do a different run. You go somewhere else, you pick up another item or another fact in, in your brain and you come back there and the choices are now slightly different. So what was your choice last time is no longer relevant or op optimal or maybe isn't even there at all. But the rest of the scene is intact. So how does an autoplay feature cope with that how can it recognize what you did and what you didn't do and we tried a bunch of different models for for how to make it work and what we ended up with is actually really simple the mechanics of it are not necessarily very interesting but it tries to accumulate as much information as it can from all of your playthroughs actually not even just your last one but if it encounters anything ambiguous then it says okay i'll just put this back to the player and say i can't make a decision here you make one um and then we put that into the game and we found that Partly it let you buzz through a scene that you'd read before without paying attention to it, which was great. It was just a fast forward button, an intelligent fast forward button. Um, and also it had the flip side of when you were playing a scene you wanted to explore, you knew how to pick a different option, which was it kind of. And that was that was really exciting for us because we didn't realize it would have that nice double function, actually. Um, and then just towards the end, uh, Joe Humphrey, my co-founder, who does the graphic and UI design for our games, uh, added the, the green timing bar so when when it's auto, when it's on autoplay mode the the choice you chose before has a little bar on it that fills up and connects just before the choice is made and there's a little curve on that so it goes fast and then it slows down at the end it's got this nice little click and what that means is that if you're playing on fast forward mode there's this thing there's this little window to go oh no i don't want to choose that i want to choose something else you get this almost like minor twitch mechanic of can I react quickly when the scene is about to go wrong? I've been playing through <laughs> and oh, that's going to catch it. And that's lovely too. So actually that feature to me, I was a real, it was a real discovery because I think for the longest time we felt that we can try to design this, but it's never going to work. It's never, it's always going to choose the wrong thing or it's always going to not offer you anything. And actually I'm really proud of the balance that we found on it because it does let you just, yeah, breeze through the bits that you already feel you know and get to the content that you want to explore, which is definitely we want. And I, I've read some reviews and things that have said, oh, you know, I want a save system so I can manage the save points myself. And I, I hear that. But at the same time, God, that sounds really boring, managing yeah. save files. I wouldn't want to do that. I'd rather just buzz through it, actually. Yeah. Well, I was kind of curious. There is one mechanic that you, you haven't quite touched yet, and that is the fact that when you're in the middle of a scene, you can hit the restart scene button. But you can only do that once per scene. Yeah. Why not make that unlimited feature? Why, you know, not allow players to redo the same scene as much as they want in that moment? Um, it's because I don't want that button to exist at all. <laughs> there we go. Tell us your fears and woes. Let's go. It, I mean, it's like, there are two ways I could express this, right? There's the, the diplomatic way, which is to say that if you give, if game players, when they encounter a game, especially a puzzle, they know that it's going to be hard and they look to simplify the problem as much as they can because they're human beings and they want the easiest path. That, that's fine. I don't hold that against them. So 
if there's a way of mapping the scene, they will map it. They will get a piece of paper and they will restart it every time and they will draw a diagram and they will show where everything goes and they will go, now I have a map. I can see that the route I want is this. And that's incredibly dull, but not only will people do it, they'll also feel like they're supposed to do it because it's possible for them to do and they can see that it will work and yeah, they could play the game properly and enjoy it and engage with it, but here's something that they know will work. So they people tend to have this obligation to do the thing that they know will work. So they, they ruin their own game and then they say, oh, I found it really boring mapping all the options. And you say, well, why did you do that? And they were like, well, <laughs> so that's the, that's the compassionate way of expressing it. The, the, the way I actually feel is, is that game players are... They are awful, and it's important to break them as much as possible. Because when people come to the game, what, what they try to do is they try to say, I am very clever, and your game is very stupid, and I will demolish your game in pieces, because I am an all-powerful member of the PC master race, which, oh my God, is such a right-wing fascist thing to say, but never mind, I'll move on. Um, <laughs> this is great. So my job as a game designer is to say, am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Uh, we'll probably edit it out, but yeah. if you need to, if you need if to you, let it out, yeah, just if you have go feelings, please let them out. Let's go. Thank you guys. I like your honesty. Um, <laughs> my job as a game designer is to say, fuck <laughs> you, this game is much more <laughs> fucking complicated than you're giving it credit for. I am going to fuck <laughs> you over as much as I possibly can. And I'm going to make it fair every time. So you don't even get to complain about it. That's literally my job as a game designer. If I was making a chess AI and the chess AI just fell over and let you win, there would be no game. The yeah. chess AI has to say, you know what? I'm better than you are. That's the whole goal of a game design is to, is to fuck you up. That's its job. So one of the ways to do that is to make sure that every time you make a decision, hey, you're the human, you made it. It's on you. It's on you. Did you just push that guy overboard in full view of another member of the cast? That is on you. Um, and so like adding that option to infinitely rewind and to infinitely map something down and reduce it to its component parts, you can't destroy somebody from the other side. From I can't destroy you as a player if you have that much power. It's too, I, I can't get through it. I can't yeah, I mean, it. that's one thing, I guess, you know, I have a bit of a reputation on this show because part of the gimmick here on this show, John, is that we read through a murder mystery. One of us reads ahead and the other uh, reads through kind of chapters at a time. And it's specifically a part of having a game of one trying to misdirect the other. And, you know, we've, okay. we've, we've put a bit of a... I've got a bit of a reputation here for being we able to solve a, a lot of mysteries. <laughs> and I think a large part of that is exactly what you're talking about, is that I come at it from, I, I guess, the same but kind of a flipped angle where I'll read a mystery novel and I'll go, I have no idea what's going on, so I'll just go back and start again and I'll keep going through as many times as it takes for me to clue into what's actually going on because... I think that experience of actually, you know, meeting the author at the table and admitting, like, I wasn't good enough to do this the first time, but I'm not giving up. Like, I love that challenge. And I love that you've kind of embodied that in the way that you complain about this tiny mechanic in the game. It's beautiful. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I mean, you know, like one thing about books is that people can play them whichever way they want to. And that's fair enough, right? You know, the other reason, which is really prosaic and really boring, is there's a card game you can play. And if you allow people to infinitely rewind, they can max out the card game by learning the pattern of the random number generator. And just uh, life is too short to allow people to do that. So. <laughs> That's fair enough. That's fair enough.
Don't let people cheat at card games. That's what we're learning today. Well, John, oh it has goodness. been an absolute pleasure having you on Death of the Reader. It has been such a joy both playing through overboarding and getting to pick your brain on it. So thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, guys. It's been a really fun. It's been excellent chatting with you. I hope you've enjoyed this extended discussion here on the podcast with John Ingold. We will have links in the podcast description to all of Inkle's stuff and Overboard itself. We really enjoyed getting to play through this game. We hadn't actually beaten all of the objectives when we had this discussion with John, but I've since gone through and done all the side objectives we could find, and it was a heap of fun. Go check the game out if you can. It's on Switch, PC, and iOS. And if you take John's advice, it's well worth your time. 